Have you ever wanted to work in a flying ICU? Or maybe you're just passionate about saving lives. Right now you can realize your dream by applying to work for one of the best teams in the air medical industry. Air Methods is currently hiring qualified flight nurses, medics, and mechanics to join our air medical team. Check out our new salary and benefits packages. Visit airmethods.com careers and apply today. That's airmethods.com careers. This is Second Shift. Well, hey, everybody. Mike Verkest, we are live. Um, and if you're keeping track, <clears throat> you might notice we're short a couple of people. <laughs> uh, right, Peter? I don't know where the hell these people are. <laughs> we're waiting. <laughs> <laughs> but we have you and Tom. We don't need anyone else. Yeah. No, no, we exactly. do need Jeff. Come on, and Ashley. We need them. Well, yeah. So anyway, there are some folks, uh, Dr. Jarvis and Ashley, that they're together broadcasting simultaneously, and they're having some technical difficulties. But we didn't want to leave you guys waiting. I mean, that's the last thing we want to do. Let's do something real quick, though. Let's do some quick introductions. I'll start off. Mike Verkest. I am the media manager for Flight Bridget and just all around cool dude. My buddies call me Mikey V, so I hope you will jump in on that train. And uh, I want to introduce, I mean, you guys know Dr. Peter Ante. We'll get to him in a second, but one fellow that's sort of new, not new, the dude's retiring <laughs> in like six minutes, uh, but new to Flight Bridget, our live broadcast, that's our good buddy, Tom Bulathe. What's up, my man? Hey, how's it going? Thanks good. for having me. I'm so glad that you're jumped on and uh, and we'll get to that beverage in your hand in a second, because that's normally what we do. We talk about that kind of stuff. But uh, but first, let's go to Dr. Peter Antetti. Hi. What's going on, guys? Happy to be here. Well, it's always great to have you. Have you caught any new episodes of this old house? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I get like alerts on my phone, like weeks in advance. Just like people, just like people get alerts to like when we go live, that's yes, like, that's how right. in tune you are. It's on DVR, baby. You know. So, so you, so do you go back and watch all the old episodes too? I mean, they essentially are all old episodes. Well, I guess that's true. So, although they've had a couple of new recent ones, but that series has been going on for decades. Oh yeah, got to be something good about it. So. Yeah. So who's who's your of the of the couple of different hosts they've had? Uh, who's been your favorite? Is it is it Bob? Is like is he the classic master of this old house or? You know, it's, uh, it's for me. It's all about the woodworking. I'm so jealous of people who can use a circular saw, who can you know make do all these things. I'm just fascinated by that. So that's kind of you know why I'm there to watch. Yeah, that. yeah, that's good. Tom, uh, so to catch you up because I'm I'm not sure how much you've been paying attention to what we got going on here uh, in the past, but we, you uh, we had Peter on in a, a podcast in like 20. 15 maybe <laughs> and one of the things that we talked about was what what our favorite shows were we did like our top five and uh and and peter came in with some good good stuff and then he he came in with number one as being this old house <laughs> uh so while we're waiting for dr jarvis and ashley liebig to come up with their technical problems which we may never get them i don't know well they're they're coming up with some stuff they're kind of trying to figure it out but if you had to name your top TV show of all time, Tom Bulathe. Boothalay. 
It would be what? Boothelay. Sorry. Yeah, it's like a recurring series, not a. No, it, can, it can be whatever you want. I'm going to go with Marco Polo on Netflix. Never even heard of it. <laughs> and that's your favorite one, and I've never heard of it. There you go. Add it to the list. Wow. That's, that's, um, I mean, really, of like all the, you know, like, you know, I know you're like 26 years old, but that's, that's where we're at. We're Marco my, Polo. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to bust your balls. I'm just saying, like, is that, that's as good as that must, is that good? Okay. Well, challenge me, like, as compared to what? Well, I mean, there's just classics. I mean, geez, there's Andy Griffith. There's, uh, I mean, I don't want to say emergency. Let's skip that whole thing. But like, there's just some great, there's a. Gomer Pyle, USMC. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think one of mine, one of my favorites back in the day was uh, Aquaman. Do you remember that? The cartoon? No, no. It was Patrick Duffy, like 1978, 79. Same time, like Battlestar Galactica was out. You know, we Ooh, had some no, stuff. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. All I know is I'm feeling pretty good about this old house after Marco Polo. Just saying. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but you don't know, him. right? But you don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's. So here's the thing. Uh, my man Jay Z have has uh, shared. I hope in the chat somewhere he's going to. He's going to share the bingo card for tonight. Um, and I got to say, I'm a little. I'm a little. I'm. I'm excited for the effort he put into it, but he did it in Excel. There's no like free space or anything. So it's not, it's not his best work ever, uh, even though I appreciate it. So um, I'm hoping that he will share that if he can, uh, but it's pretty good. Oh, look at this. I got a jar. Do you guys see him? (laughs) He's good. He looks looks super happy as you can imagine. Um, That's a DSL connection. We we got you, Dr. Jarvis. I'll I'll get you in here. And he thinks we can hear him. Of this thing, um, I think what you should do is uh, talk to Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> so he, here's the little here's the little secret that I know. Don't worry, guys. I'm here. That's that's right. that's, honestly, that's just really all that matters. Thank God. Thank yeah. God. Tell that's Jarvis he needs. Tell Jarvis he needs to hit the focus button because I'm. You guys should see the setup here. It is freaking intense in the other room. He had all beautified and ready to go for this thing. It's like a, it's like a whole TV scenario in here. Oh yeah. Anyway, I wasn't prepared to be on camera. Look, look at guys. Look at what COVID did to me. You see this? It's amazing. See all that? See all that gray? <laughs> oh, I see. Gray, yeah, gray you haven't got that lately. You know what? All that wisdom. The picture is so bad we can't see the gray. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, I did ask him if his Wi-Fi out here in uh, in rural Texas was part of the problem, and he indicated that he had the very best Wi-Fi ever supplied by NASA or SpaceX or something. So he's- yeah, he's probably got a little drone flying over his house. <laughs> no, that's you, Rukas. <laughs> well, uh, say hi, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Ashley. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was a little hat tip there. So, so listen, we, we, we need, we have a couple things we got to do. Then we got to get into it because people don't care about Wi-Fi and all that kind of crap. They're they're here. Really? Because I'm holding it against him for at least the next, I don't know. A couple years. At least. I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't hold it against them. And the, the best part about this whole thing is, is I know he's literally dying inside right now. Yes. And outside. Exterior. Like. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. So yeah, let's get to it. I'm, All right. So I'm first things first, coach. first things first, we always got to go through what are we drinking tonight? And so some people go non-alcoholic, some people go regular, um, but I think we need to do that. So since I'm talking, I will start. I, uh, there's not much left. I didn't have a bunch, but I tried something new and it was a bottle that I picked up. It's called Yellowstone bourbon it is from um kentucky it is a kentucky bourbon and it's uh it's okay i mean it's not it's not my favorite thing but it was the first glass out of that thing maybe it'll grow on me um but you know it's fine it's good of all the ones i had to to choose from what's that you won't be calling you to do a commercial (laughs) yeah we're not turning it into a commercial tom what do you got going buddy it's a uh, captain and ginger ale and it's getting low, as you can see. So I might yeah. need to make a run to the kitchen. Yeah, you. if you got to run to the kitchen, you better do it real quick. All right, thank you for that. Peter, I know you're a big fan of the uh, pre-made home delivery old-fashioned, but I understand you did something a little bit different tonight. And everyone oh. brace yourself for this. <laughs> well, first of all, I got the dogs barking at some random you know, duck in the background. Sorry about thank that. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I got Maker's Mark tonight. And I uh, mixed it myself with uh, a little uh, simple sugar and some bitters, and we're all okay. good. All Back right. on mute for me for now. All right, good. Well, yeah, go, go <laughs> put your dogs away. I don't know. And Ashley, I know I saw a bottle of wine for you. What's going on there? Um, this is a Salado Red from uh, my little village of Salado. It's a Tempranillo and, and Merlot blend, and it is delightful. Oh, wow. A Tempranillo. Mm-hmm. Fancy. So, I, if I'm gonna have wine, I like the I like the red blend. You know, I'm a, I'm a I, I actually I'm I don't discriminate. I like them all. I like oh, the red, the white, the rosé, all of them. All right. Well, that's good. All right. Good. Well, I think we got some of this stuff. I see Jay Z shared the bingo card. Thank you for that. And if you're watching right now, put it in the comments. What's on your happy hour menu? Um, I mean, some people it's like mid two in the morning wherever people are. I know Tom's like, God. I haven't drank at nine o'clock at night in forever. Anyway, well, there's lots of stuff going. I hope everyone's staying safe out there. You know, COVID, man, we're getting tired. I hope you're getting your vaccines. I hope you're out there pushing these things, getting these shots in people's arms. So that's good. Keep that going. Uh, Stay strong out there. But really what we're here to talk about tonight, um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about like a really kind of what inspired me to kind of come up with this particular uh, live episode. And that is why, why do in cardiac or in hospital cardiac arrest seem to go so sideways or in, and, and really I stole Tom's when we were chatting back and forth when I was inviting me, he's like, it's like a box of chocolates, right? So like a little take on the Forrest Gump movie is, is you really never know what you're going to get. And then, so a, a lot of our friends here that are on this podcast with us or this video, um, did a little research and it turns out that, you know, uh, people do know that in hospital cardiac arrest isn't that great. And there's actually been some literature put out on this, probably a lot of literature. And we're going to try to share some of these things as we get going through here. But there was a, uh, if you're not familiar with the app Clubhouse, um, every once in a while I get an alert that says, hey, there's a, there's a, there's a group opened up, a room, and they're talking. And this one was how to run a code like a boss. And it was by a few uh, physicians that were in there. And again, it could be uh, anyone from a med student to a to a resident to an attending to who who knows, right? Big big sort of widespread of of experience and things like that. And I just started listening to what they were talking about, and they were very well aware 
um, of what a shit show it can be in the hospital, right? On the ward, on the floor, all lots of different, um, you know, terminology. And that's probably some of the problem too. There's lots of different terminology uh, out there as, as things go. And, and it really made me think as like, why is it so different? Cause I feel like now I granted the people that are on this particular video on this live right now, we are all in pretty high performing systems, I would say, uh, pretty comfortable saying that. And for us, I mean, most of them probably go like pretty, pretty good. Like, I mean, we're pretty dialed in and the people that are watching, you're probably experiencing the same. That doesn't mean to say that sometimes things don't go sideways and things are goofy and weird and they could have gone, gone better. But I would say on the whole, our survival rates, right. And, and, and the thing is, is if I asked you what your, uh, Utstein survival rate is right now. Peter Antevi, what is yours? Davy Fire Rescue, or yeah, close to 60%. Okay, Tom, what about you? Hilton Head, our five year average from 2015 to 2019 was 55%. Okay, that's about where ours is right now over the last about three years. No. Um, we're, we're not gonna, sorry, we're having we're technical having difficulties. difficulties. <laughs> oh, you're, you're doing. Well, I don't know. You sound fine to me, but I'm going to. No, no, definitely ask. technical difficulties. Sorry, no data put, available. Uh-uh, yep, no. Spinning wheel connection problem. I don't I don't know. You sound good and you look fine to us, so I don't know. You'll anyway, notice I didn't bring up 2020. The, the, the point is, is that yes, just further. Yes, what is the point? That Wait. it further affirms um, that uh, the high-performing systems, oh, okay. like the people that are running the leadership within these, they, they know these numbers, right? Do you know your number at your agency? Throw it in the chat. If you are watching and you know what your Utstein survival cardiac arrest survival rate is, I'd love to see it. Um, but the point is, is why, why does pre-hospital seem to be so amazing? And we just lost those guys. Um, I'm just going to leave it like this in case they pop back in. Um, but why does ours seem to be so much better? And it could be a simple answer, but it could be a little bit more complicated than that. So, uh, Tom, let me start with you. What are your thoughts just generally when we started talking about this topic the other day? Um, I guess I, I thought with a little bit of humility because, but you know, I became a paramedic in 1995. And I would say from 1995 to maybe 2010, yeah, um, our philosophy was let's get them to the hospital as soon as possible so that the nurses and physician can save their life. We might shock them a couple of times starting, you know, but what we were focused on, did we get the tube? Did we get the IV? And are we going to present the patient to the emergency department where we don't look foolish, you know, was kind of the mentality. And the faster you could do that, the better you were. And I don't think that we even realized that the patient could survive. I think we were just trying to, tick all the boxes yeah, and, and get it done without embarrassing ourselves. And so um, if we were able to improve that and it took a long time to do, then I guess my thought is then the hospital ought to be able to do the same thing, even though inside the hospital, it's probably a different cohort. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I mean, were you even measuring survival back then? <laughs> I mean, I, Maybe you were, but I, I can certainly tell you just a, one, I don't think we were right. And if we, and if they were, I never heard about it as a medic. Uh, and number two, um, uh, you're right. I mean, I, you know how many times I rode the rail and did one handed CPR? Cause I, I thought it was the, that's what you did. Like, I mean, that is unheard of, right? 
Right. And it wasn't until Bob Davis wrote the series Six Minutes to Live or Die in USA Today. I think that was in 2005 to where we started thinking about like, wow, how many cardiac arrests do we respond to? <clears throat> this was before electronic patient care records. So we didn't know how often we worked a cardiac arrest. We didn't know how often bystander CPR was performed. We didn't know how frequently a public uh, AED was deployed yeah. and, and how often we had ROSC and of course, how often people survived hospital discharge. We just had no clue because we weren't measuring. We didn't join CARES until 2010. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that seems like, I mean, CARES in 2010, that's pretty good, right? I mean, I don't think my agency even heard of or even knew about cares probably till 2015 maybe right and then um you oregon was a little bit unique at least i feel like it was early on was that individual agencies we, there wasn't really space for individual agencies but if a state wanted to jump on then we could sort of work up through the state and sort of get our care stuff going and maybe that's just the way it was but um peter i'm curious from your perspective now you've been in the game a little bit uh here obviously your focus and love is, is pediatric stuff but i mean you're the medical director right so um how have how have you seen cardiac arrest survival progress through your system over the years um i'm just curious about that yeah, no, I mean, for me now, it's as clear as day, the differences. And again, I've been in EMS for 11 years in systems that we just kind of ran cardiac arrest, but we weren't high performing systems when I first got there. And so it's similar to stroke where you have a stroke patient, take them to the closest hospital and no one knew any better. So just like with stroke, where now our medics know exactly what should be happening they're asking the right questions, they're doing the right things. In cardiac arrest, once we kind of, and it all started with Tom, I gotta give Tom all the credit here. I went to a recess academy in, in Hilton Head. And then because of what I learned there, I sent my team from Davy Fire Rescue to Seattle. And then they came back with the bug. And then we started to really understand cardiac arrest. And then the differences started to become much more clear. And I think, EMS, because it's protocolized, right? That is the one of, one of the biggest things. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the amount of CQI on every single cardiac arrest that we do and the detail that we do it on. And you see the, you know, the code stat summaries and the emails that go out after every call. We do a post-call review. Go to a hospital today. And I think Joseph in the comments is mentioning, you know, just, just even the end title CO2 I'm lucky today in my own hospital system, if people even know what I'm talking about when I say, let's get continuous waveform capnography. They say, we have the thing that turns from purple to yellow. I'm like, no, I don't want that. Oh so, so the fact that we are protocolized and we have great training in CQI matters in the hospital, kind of every doctor for themselves no one's really reviewing the codes when, you know, no one's using technology so that there is no code stat in a hospital unless you're using the life pack or the Zoll, which right. they don't do. They use the monitor up at top of the bed, right? So they're, they're not getting any of that feedback. I'm saying this is, I'm just generalizing here. Sure, of course. And, and you know, um, there's different teams every single day. No one knows who's who and what's what. I mean, we know each other, but we haven't trained together. And so there's so many 
huge differences here. I mean, we could talk on that about it, but th those are my initial comments on the differences. Yeah. 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 Tom. So I, I would love to get your thoughts on something. So in, in our system, pre-hospitally, um, twice a year, we do multi-agency training. So we get everybody from the ambulance provider, uh, ALS, per, uh, ALS, I mean, every provider from all the area, uh, fire departments, and we come together sans COVID, uh, of course. Uh, but we would get together twice a year and we would train off. Uh, I don't want to say off duty, but in the non sort of clinical arena, right? So we're not on a call. There's not the pressure of the call. Um, and we are just sort of getting to know each other a little bit. We're rubbing elbows with all these different agencies. Um, did you guys do stuff like that in Hilton Head? What? How did you guys train with other responders within your area? Because on most of these calls, and for the people that are watching, I'm guessing you probably respond with uh, an ambulance company or a uh, maybe you're lucky enough to have a, a fire department transport and you sort of respond with them. So, But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, when we first started to try and, and develop a choreographed model for cardiac arrest, we created what we called our pit crew model at that time, and we did what seemed logical to us. And we had decent success with that, better than just winging it on every attempt, because it meant we were working the cardiac arrest on scene. And, you know, because prior to that, it would have been up to the individual lead paramedics discretion, whether or not to work it on scene or just, you know, load and go. go. Yeah. So at that point, at least we started working it on scene. We knew from Wake EMS that there were some things that they had done to, to implement the 2005 guidelines in terms of like concentration on minimally interrupted CPR and things like that. So that was a step forward. But when we went out to Seattle King County and found out the way that they used instrumented mannequins, and I guess we thought with pit crew that every code was going to start and it was going to be really chaotic, but at some point it would settle down. And then once it settled down, these would be the roles. We didn't realize that it didn't have to start chaotically, that it could start very methodically and it could start the same exact way every time and that it could be highly organized from the moment you arrived on scene. So I fully credit Seattle King County for that. And then so ever since then, we've developed, we've utilized their pod method. We've trained that way. I have 100% buy-in. So you could ask any crew in my department, any person in my department, how does Hilton Head Island Fire Rescue work a code? And they would tell you the exact same thing. And that was a huge achievement for us all to be so dialed in that we have standardized work just like manufacturing might. <laughs> so from that standpoint, I think that's what really took us to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. That's awesome. So, so let me, let me check in with our um, technically <laughs> challenged people here a little bit. Are you guys there? Like what's going on? We're totally here. We're yeah. ready to go now. We are, <laughs> we are set. Can you hear us? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you just fine. Oh my God. What a pain <laughs> in the ass. We have been having some issues. So I believe one of the things that you were asking, I will, um, I, as I was yelling and screaming and throwing cats and iPads and um, <laughs> phones, I think that uh, I heard y'all going over some of the reasons that your EMS systems are doing well with cardiac arrest. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Well, so I think y'all got the, the hospital based stuff um, covered well. 
And if my wife were happened to be listening and were in the mood to come get a cat before she crawls up She's the camera, fine. And knocks yeah, the down, cat that would be a helpful thing. <laughs> where this camera is going to go down. Let, yeah. let, let the cat let the cat have some freedom. Yeah. yeah. All right. We'll see what happens. Right. So let's talk about, I think y'all got this stuff covered from a pre-hospital, what you need to do. And, um, you know, Tom talked about that paper uh, from Wake County. And as I'm looking at it, just incidentally, it looks like the lead author was some dude named Hinchy, but there's also some dude named Zalkin on this paper. Um, I'm not sure how he got on there. Um <laughs> So let's let's talk a little bit about why I was in the hospital today. Um, fortunately, we didn't have a cardiac arrest. But when I go to cardiac arrest, they are sort of the epitome of what prompted this conversation. So let's talk about why perhaps they don't do the things that y'all were talking about. Um, so I did hear Peter talk about the high tech um, review equipment that we have, the little color metric CO2 thing. Um, <laughs> if an ER doctor hadn't thrown it across the room yet. <laughs> so we have no way to, um, to look at any quality metrics at all. We don't even know what quality metrics to look like or to look at, but we do have the general um, concepts that we're supposed to do minimally interrupted compressions. We're supposed to focus on defibrillation, CPR, and the other things don't matter. The problem is that the, pretty much the sole way we know that is by taking online ACLS classes individually, <laughs> not doing it as a team. And then you have, just because of the nature of hospitals, we have an awful lot more people that show up to a code and we have different shifts and there are hundreds of people in the building at a given time. So you have all of these different team combinations. So we don't know what team is gonna be showing up. Um, and then you have people who fundamentally don't train together. And I think that's really the issue. Um, if you were to ask any one person what the right thing to do is, I think they'd be happy to tell you. They can recite the algorithm as well as anybody else can. But it turns out it's less about the algorithm and more about the implementation and the team dynamics and how you run it. Um, most codes, at least in a hospital, will have, particularly in an ICU, God help you in an ICU, you have, you know, lots of adult doctors and PD doctors. And by this, I don't mean pediatricians. I mean, um, resident. Um, and we all have to learn somewhere. So, I mean, it's, I was probably just as bad when I was a resident, but we get in and we all have this tendency that we want to run things and nobody knows who to listen to who, and it just gets to be um, a complete lack of a team effort, even though each individual knows what to do. Um, Ashley, you you work uh, quite a bit of ICU stuff. Is that your impression? Yeah. Or? So, so really, so I have the I have a different um, experience because mine has been um, I started in the ICU um, in the hospital, and then I went to the pre-hospital <laughs> arena, and so I watched it be done relatively poorly um, in the hospital, and then I got out into a helicopter with um, EMS systems like Austin EMS who who train regularly on pit crew CPR and have assigned roles. And and I was looking around like, what, why can the four of you do this? And in the hospital, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's asses and elbows everywhere and it's crazy. And so it really, I really started on a mission a few years ago to go in um, and work with hospitals to train 
part of it, the back end side of that for me was to train them um, to be ready to establish um, eCPR, um, ECMO, um, in the and cannulate a patient in the emergency department in conjunction with um, Zach Shiner, Joe Belezzo, and and Scott Weingart. Um, and so I, so part of my um, my learning with those guys and my passion about ECMO and the utility for our patients was to figure out how to run these recesses really clean, really fast. And so I went out to Sharp in California and I studied with those guys and and watched their their critical key components about how they did this. And really, um, and I've spoken on this at you know um, at the um, at nursing conferences at SMAC at different places, and and I'm extremely passionate about a few things. And one of those um, is the the ergonomics and and why we can't do this right in a hospital because rooms are all set up differently. Um, we and different departments have different pieces of equipment and different things. Um, we're we're not thinking about ergonomics. We work really hard to kind of stretch and move and. Um, so the ergonomics of the rooms are set up uh, really poorly, and we're not we're not trained to think about that. Um, we're not allowing nurses to run ACLS um, in the concept of team resuscitation. We really need to let nurses run the ACLS. Let them cognitively offload physicians so that the physician can think about the bigger picture stuff and eliminate that piece um, from, from just the, the tasking items, just the timing, um, the, you know, when to give epi, how much, all those kinds of things, just completely offload those and prove that cognitive offloading and the can lead study that we are, we're going to talk about in a little bit um, talks about how physicians are completely offloaded in that scenario. Um, assigned roles. So when you talk about, oh, we can't do this because we have residents here, or we can't do this because we have nursing students, or we can't bullshit. Look, you're person one, you're person two, you're the team lead, you're the whatever you want to name your people. Yeah. You have seven people in there, you name them, they have a job, <laughs> right? Just like we do through CPR. It doesn't matter who's on what shift or who's rotating around. You know that this man and this man and this man and this man or woman all have this job, right? And then communication and facilitating that regular communication um, is is extremely important both during the during the um, algorithm in a, in a calm, cool, collected sort of way, and then also in debriefing afterwards. And those are key components that make the hospital that we destroy in the hospital and do terribly, 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 awfully bad. But we manage to do well outside of the hospital. So if we can just get a grasp of those things inside the hospital, um, we can totally change the face of resuscitation. I have an idea then, Ashley. I'm really excited about it. I have an idea then. Why don't we hire medics in the emergency department to run the freaking code? I was, like you, you know what's oh, so because funny? That's, uh, because I think there's a hierarchy a, problem there, right? Where am I? Oh, I was, I was like, <laughs> it hurt me two times. <laughs> so weird. This is a full of buggy bugs. <laughs> but so so yeah so so you guys nailed it. But I, I, I one of the pieces that they were hitting on heavily again on, on this clubhouse the other day. Uh, again, their audience was physicians, and I was just the little paramedic sort of, you know, listening in. But so let me ask you this, Peter. Uh, one of the things that they talked about was let's say uh, you're you're working the ED. Code blue comes in, whatever code it is, colored, whatever, code brown, it sounds like in most places. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's one of those things happening, and, and you go, and you decide you're going to go up there, and you're going to go help out. And one of the big discussions they had was, how do you, as you enter the room, 
as a physician, mm -hmm. how what what are the first words out of your mouth, and what is the first two minutes of your interaction look like yeah. on a cardiac arrest on the floor or on the ICU or whatever it is going to be? Uh, I, I love this question. This is uh, <laughs> um, because you know I was a guy who used to run the mock codes up on the on the floors. And when they used to see me walking up the floors, they would shit their pants because they knew what was about to happen. <laughs> so, um, and then, so what, what I would say is, is that you have to declare number one, who's in charge, right? Because if you don't know who's in charge, how many times have all of us walked into a room, into an ER and they're all gowned up, right? And the person walks in who thinks they're in charge and they look around and they don't know who's who. They haven't asked anyone. It turns out half the people that are students, <coughs> residents, right? They have no idea who anybody is. And then when the kid comes in or the adult comes in, they expect to then have command of the room. So a number one thing is to say, I'm Peter Antevi. I'm the attending here. I'm in charge. Okay. You know, you could say it in whatever way you want kind of thing. And then you say, I want to know who everybody is. And I go through, this is if I have a few minutes beforehand and you know, who, you know, who are you, who are you? And I make sure that I have my respiratory therapist, my med nurse, my procedure nurse, who's documenting, who's going to be uh, doing CPR, right? And you know, oftentimes, if you don't look at those things, they end up giving you the nurse who's like four foot tall. They put two stools. And they don't lower the bed. And then they're doing CPR like this, right? So I think that the, the, the pre-preparation, the pre-planning is important. So if, if I just have 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes before, you know, this person's coming into my ED, I'm, I'm loving that. If you're going up to the floor and having to kind of walk into a room where you know nobody, then you better know how to take control of the room and let everyone know what's going on and that they know who to take the actual orders from, right? And if you're good at running the show, which I think there's a skill to learn there to A, not be an asshole, not raise your voice, know how to just stay calm, look calm, you know, don't, don't run into the room, right? You run, you speak loudly, your voice is too fast, you lose the room. And if the parents in there, they start flipping out too. So yeah. I think it's all about your demeanor, how you say things, how you look, and then knowing what to do when you first get there. And then the rest is easy from there. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, Dr. Jarvis, I'm going to get to you in a second, but but Tom, I want to ask you a question and, and Ashley, feel free to jump in, but we'll start with Tom. How many people, because this is an ongoing theme, by the way, if you haven't checked out some of the posts on Twitter regarding this broadcast, right? Like it has been really amazing. Like a lot of people have a lot of stuff to say, but one of the recurring themes was that there's a thousand people that show up, right? So Tom, what I want to know from you is how many people do you think, in your expert opinion, does it take to run a code and put yourself in a hospital for a minute, right? Mm -hmm. What are the jobs that are required and how many people is optimal? So I want the opportunity to qualify this later because yes, my information is you. And you can qualify now, buddy. Okay, fantastic. Um, so we send a medic, two engines, and a battalion chief in our First alarm for a cardiac arrest is seven to eleven people. Okay. Two engines. Two engines. Damn. Yeah, we put we put nine on a cardiac arrest. <laughs> there you go. Wow. I, I would say that's the sweet spot because you have to think about care of the family, right? 
So we, we, we have an on-scene supervisor, um, which is the battalion chief. That individual has the formal responsibility to utilize the checklist. They're also responsible for other things that are happening during the cardiac arrest that aren't life and death at that moment, but matter a lot. Like for example, um, taking down the contact info of anyone that did bystander CPR or deployed a publicly available AED so they can be sent a thank you letter and a challenge coin from the department and be debriefed later because we owe it to them to care about their mental health and aftercare after yep. this experience. Um, we know we need to, to switch out rescuer on chest compressions every two minutes. We know that someone might have to run down to the medic and grab some more calcium <laughs> if we think it's hyperkalemia or something like that. Um, and we don't want to saddle people down with having to like worry so much about, you know, every little single thing that they have to bring to the scene, especially if it's on the fifth floor of Marriott Grand Ocean. You can always turn trucks around, right? Um, but we, we don't ever want the logistical problems associated with cardiac arrest to be stressing the people that are providing the care. Hmm. And so we send the appropriate amount of people. If they're not needed, we can turn them around. But how many people do you send to a structure fire where no lives are in danger? Okay. Um, the, here we know we have a life in danger. And so we're sending the appropriate resources to make sure that we can handle that um, from every different uh, perspective. Um, that has been very successful for us. We didn't, you know, we learned that from other departments like Wake EMS from uh, Seattle King County. So we, we looked at that as maybe not evidence-based, but as a best practice and it works for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Dr. Jarvis, talk a little bit about uh, communication during the code, if you will, because one of the other themes in this clubhouse chat that I was like sneaking, I felt like a fly on the wall being able to listen to um, was assignment of roles. And one of the things that they said, and I'm curious from your experience, maybe current or old back in the day or whatever it may be, but there is a tendency for people, let's say the code leader or whatever you want to call them code. Well, they come up with some weird stuff, but anyway, whoever's running the show is just to say, we need an IV established. We need to get some Epi on board. We need to do some stuff. And everyone's kind of looking at each other like, are you, are you doing that? Or like, do, am I supposed to do that? So uh, can you talk a little bit about communication for the roles and responsibilities as the code leader uh, in like in a hospital setting, maybe a little bit about that. Then we'll get into some research, which I'd love to talk about. So I think the challenge, the, the way that we do this in the field, there's very little communication that goes on because people already know what the roles are. Um, so whoever, so we have an engine, we respond an engine, we respond a commander and we respond to two paramedic ambulance. Um, and the engine typically has three to four people. Um, so as we get there, we assign whoever was driving becomes the procedure medic. Whoever is in charge becomes the in charge medic. Um, and their job is to run the code. Um, so they're looking at the defibrillator and they're looking at everybody else. They're looking at the feedback devices. Um, and you have a procedure medic to do procedures and then you have firefighters to go in and out doing compressions. Um, so they know what the roles are. They know that we're swapping out every, um, uh, two minutes. And then we have people to relieve them as they're getting tired and as their compression quality starts to drop. Um, so the lead medic essentially is talking to the procedure medic and saying, okay, it's time for epi or it's 
okay, we're 10 minutes in, let's go ahead and manage the airway now. Um, so in general, when you have a system that knows what the roles are and what the assignments are, and as you're going to the call, you already know what you're going to be doing. It's actually a pretty quiet uh, resuscitation. And that quietness is good. Um, I'm a big believer that the quieter the resuscitation, mm. the better the resuscitation. Amen to that. So I think that's where the, um, the uh, communication comes in. The, the other point, I think, as with any communication, is the whole concept of closed loop. Uh, make sure when you say something that the person you're addressing to, first off, knows that you're addressing them. In our case, it's pretty clear because we've already defined that ahead of time. If you're in a hospital, that's much more challenging. Um, in the emergency department, I'll, I'll look at um, the nurse and say, Heather, I would like you to give epinephrine um, or whatever the, the issue is. In codes in my emergency department, it's, it's much nicer, especially if they're before everybody gets there. I sort of just stand in the back of the room um, and I don't have to tell Heather to give epi because Heather knows to give epi. Um, so there's less communication, but the more people you have show up, the more important that becomes, and you need to make sure that you're specifically talking to one individual. They know you're talking to them. You tell them what you want them to do, and then you make sure they tell it back to you. Yeah. But more of that that you have to do and ad hoc assign, um, the more challenging it's going to be. It's worked so much better when you know ahead of time um, what the roles are. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that there's been a major loop thrown at us with COVID, right? All the PPE, right? And everyone looks the same. So I know that there has been some real sort of intentional, uh, you know, measures taken to put names on face shields, to put, to, to do something. So people, because I'll, I'll tell you, and Tom, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um, and again, most of the codes are quiet. I mean, there's only so many jobs that need to be done on a cardiac arrest, right? You need a couple people for compressions, somebody on the airway, somebody to run the monitor, uh, somebody with the family and somebody kind of running the code. So like you get 50 people in there, like you might get at a hospital. And, and again, I, I'll be curious to get some other thoughts on this, but um, that communication piece is important, especially pre-hospital. Wouldn't you agree? It is. And so we should also train in crew resource management and talk about codes not just what happened or didn't happen on the code, but any dysfunctional behaviors that happen on a code. You might like in our in our service, um, whoever is the lead medic, meaning they're going to be the the paramedic that's responsible for the transport unit, um, is right. by default the team leader because a captain paramedic or a battalion chief paramedic might show up, and if you're not confident, you could get steamrolled oh, and. Easy. Yeah. The, so the code could be taken in a, a, a direction that you didn't intend. And then you might say, well, are you going to write the patient care report? And the captain's like, <laughs> right. that's really funny. Yeah, no, I'm totally not going to do that. So, um, so we've had to, so the reason we know that is we have these conversations afterwards and I let them know it's an expectation of anything dysfunctional from a teamwork perspective happened on the code. I want to know about it not to punish anybody, but we need to talk about it afterwards. So we uh, really care about uh, teamwork, communication and leadership. If you don't care about those things, those things can't get better. So you have to prioritize that as much as the IVs, the, the airway management, the shocking on a two minute cycle and, and all, you know, if you're just looking at the 
you know, the mechanics of, of, you know, your, your, whatever metrics you're measuring your CPR fraction time and leaving out that other piece, you're, you're, you're leaving something on the table. You got to look at all of it. Tired of boring Zoom conferences? Fast 21 will bring the latest technology in the virtual environment to ensure you have the most amazing experience possible. This year's program will take place May 11th and 12th and with the same world-class speakers you've come to expect at the Fast Symposium, Fast 21 Virtual will blow you away. Networking, small group discussions, a complete vendor experience and more. Go to fastsymposium.com to secure your Fast Pass now. Yeah, no, I mean that's all that's all good stuff. And and you speaking of the debrief, speaking speaking of the things that I feel like I mean, to some extent, there's probably always a debrief of some kind, right? Whether it's in the hallway outside the room, whatever it happens to be. And I'm and I'm speaking specifically on the hospital side. So maybe Ashley, you can speak to this. But you know, do those things regularly happen? I mean, is that a is that a normal uh, thing? Is there I mean, is there room for growth? Is there like, hey, you know, this these are the things I feel like you know, no, am I crazy? What, oh, what, yes, what? you're crazy. <laughs> yes. Um, there is no there is no debriefing. There is no um and and granted, I've been outside of the hospital um for several years now, but I can, Oh, it's completely changed. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but I have I have trained with hospitals, I've gone into hospitals to teach this concept of um team resuscitation and nurse-led ACLS. Um and so I I can tell you that it there debriefing is not happening. Communication, like Peter talked about earlier, which is probably the thing that sets the tone for how the code will run um, and how organized it will be. And that leadership role is so critically important. That's not taught. It's not considered. Um, we don't teach, you know, we teach residents how to run an ACLS algorithm. They don't need to know how to run an ACLS. I mean, yes, they do, but I, they don't need to do it, right? The nurse is there to do that and manage that. The, the residents should be at the head of the bed with the physician thinking about, you know, your H's and T's and thinking about what the, um, the treatment priorities and outcomes are, talking to the family, those kinds of things. So we don't, that doesn't happen in the hospital. Um, so we're doing this all over globally across the board in multiple states and multiple hospital systems everywhere really poorly. We, we don't worry about, um, we don't trust the nurses. And Mike, you're, you're guilty of this um, because Twice now you've said I'm just the uh, I'm just the paramedic with all these physicians, um, and that continues to feed and I, and you know I love you so I can call you out, but that continues to feed that hierarchical mindset where um, we don't have anything to contribute to um, to this resuscitation and that's just not true because as we're talking about um, we're really in the field setting the standard for what this looks like and you guys are are the kings of this and of this domain and really it should be adopted in the hospital so so stop downgrading yourselves um paramedics and people in the field because that is that is absolutely not the case when we start focusing on these assigned you know assigning roles and communication um and allowing the people who can do their jobs do their jobs we cognitively offload these docs and and provide a better resuscitation experience um, but that is just, it's just not happening because we continue to make excuses for why we can't. Just as Dr. Jarvis just said, you, you know where you sit in the, in the engine or in the ambulance assigns your position. There's no reason that, that can't happen in the hospital. Whatever, you know, you get there, you come on shift and you're told you're the, you're the, um, you're the med electric nurse tonight. You're yeah. the ACLS nurse tonight. You're the physician that's going to run, you know, you're the you're the primary or you're the procedure doc. 
all those things can happen in the hospital just like they happen in the field. We're just making a lot of excuses for why they can't. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question, though. Why? Uh, how many people here amongst our group and the people who are online have, have actually trained up their hospital staff on PICRU CPR, number one? And then if you've done that, how long has that lasted for, right? And the reason I say that is because we've tried that, but the turnover, it seems to be so rampant. And, you know, someone's got to keep up with all this, right? So you all know that once you're in, especially in South Florida, once you're in the fire service, you're, you're a lifer, right? You, you like, like Tom, he's so old. He's, actually about he's so old, he's retiring. He's yeah. retiring at 50 years Quitter. old. Okay, so, but Tom he started with what, when you were five, Tom? Too, and he's retiring. <laughs> right, so, so Tom, yeah, Tom started when he was five. But so the, the point is, is that if you come to the emergency department, and Ashley probably knows this better than anybody else, but like it's the, the turnaround, and they're all becoming nurse practitioners, they're all going to you know radiology or to post-op, whatever, but like the ER burns you out, and so you, you find yourself in that rabbit, you know, what do you call it? In the hamster wheel, yeah. trying to catch up. Even so that we even put tape on the ground near the gurney to tell people where to stand. I mean, that's kind of how we had to break it down just to show you how we, we tried to do it. But at the end of the day, you really have to have a, an algorithm or mechanism to keep that up. And again, Ashley, I'm not sure if your hospitals do that, but it's so crazy. We have so many people who are waiting for rooms and, you know, it, it's, it's basically, it's impossible to even move in the emergency department. And then you're expecting them to train up on high performance CPR. It's hard to do that. especially. I, if you're I don't, I don't disagree with you at all, Peter. Um, but I will, but I will challenge you a little bit in that um, to become a nurse um, in any of those places, you have a series of competencies that you need to be able to provide and do. Um, and I'm not saying that anyone needs to learn any new skills. Um, running an ACLS algorithm or a resuscitation is not new skills. It's just a new way of doing things. So if we adopt this as an ethos of the environment, so you come here and you learn this thing and it's, you know, it's day three on your clinical day that you get precepted. This is where we stand. If I'm the med electric nurse, this is where I stand. If I'm the ACLS nurse, this is where I stand. If you're, I'm the, um, if I'm the, the lead physician, this is where I stand. If I'm the procedure physician and these are my roles, I don't care if they're in a card um, in your pocket, just like they are for all of our medics and all of our cheat sheets. But, but saying that, oh, the turnover's high or that we can't do this um, is, I just, I really think it's underestimating the capabilities of the people that we're hiring. And um, when you empower, particularly nursing, because I can speak to that, when you empower nurses to do just this, you will see, I promise you, you will see a happier um, nursing staff. You will see a nurse retention um, rate that, um, that increases. You'll see the, the people and the team and the camaraderie come up because they have been given a task and, um, and feel some pride in what they're doing. Rather, Nobody wants to leave work knowing that they just ran a shit show. Totally. Listen, I want to be very clear. I completely agree with you, but I, I think there has to be a, there has to be someone or some group of people who are committed to it. So I'll, I'll give you an example. In my career uh, for years, I came in once a month and it was in, like only nurses showed up. The doctors didn't even show up because they didn't care. And we, we became so bonded and so close and we ran coach so well that 
at the end of the day, they didn't need the doctors anymore. And that's why I, I completely am with you on the nurse run code. I would put them at the doctors at the head of the bed. And over time, they knew exactly what to do and codes ran so much smoother. And so, but it, it does take a hospital to say, we would like to focus on that. And then you just go and you focus just like what, what you do, what Tom does, what Jeff does and Mike, you know, you have to make it part of who you are. But unfortunately the hospital over time said, you know what, Pete, cause you know, I asked, listen, I'm coming into my own time initially for free. Then I'm like, you know what? I'm coming in, I'm getting paid. So they started paying me a little bit. And then finally, after a couple of years, they're like, you know what? We don't want to pay you anymore. And so, you know, it ended up falling off. And what happens over time is that you people fall back into the, I'm not so sure who's in charge and what to do anymore. So it does take, like you were saying, Ashley. It has to be tied. We have to get it. Um, we have to get it tied to a metric or standard yes. um, for it to be that, you know, so it's almost legislated and governed that it has to be a thing because if it has to be a thing, then we're going to make it a thing and make it a priority. Um, otherwise you're right. Absolutely. Human nature is that it's going to go away or it yeah. has to be privatized in, in a, in a business that makes so much sense that people have to purchase, you know, not unlike they do hand heavy, right? Because we recognize the utility and the beauty of it and it's awesome. And so, so this is just the next step of that cognitive offloading concept of, of developing something that, um, that, that changes the way people do resuscitation that changes lives. And, and it either needs to be marketed that way uh, from a privatized standpoint, or it has to be mandated that way from a, um, from a patient safety um, and a, and a JCO standpoint. Agreed. So there are, I think basically what we're saying is if you want sustained um, improvement, you have to have a champion and the champion has to have the ability to do something. So if you look just to make an analogy here, let's what we're talking about is making something happen in the hospital. Um, if you look at the literature on, say, kind of a hot topic right now, ED boarding. So these are patients who get admitted to the hospital, have nowhere to go. So they just back up. And all of our emergency departments right now are full of these patients. Mm -hmm. um, I actually came in this morning, only had two admitted patients and was like, what the <laughs> hell happened? It was amazing. Um, there's a massive patient diuresis. But if you look at the literature and when it says, do you, would you like to know how to solve this problem? You get the CEO's bonus tied to the lack of boarding. Mm. Then all of a sudden the CEO is motivated to do this. Yeah. And he says, what is the problem? What's wrong with the ER? And comes down and starts looking and realizes it's not the ER. It's the front door, not the back door and, or the other way around. So he starts figuring out where the problem is and decides there's going to be a champion there. So if you want in, if you look at an EMS agency and say, why have y'all managed, how is it you've managed to have sustained improvement in any process? It's because the director and the medical director have been invested in making that happen. And then that becomes a culture mm -hmm. and it is easier to fit in with that culture and do it right mm -hmm. than it is not to. Um, the challenge is when I have like zero responsibility at my hospital. I show up, I work some shifts, very few shifts. It's a pretty sweet gig. And then I come do my EMS gig. I don't have the authority to make that happen in my hospital. Um, you need someone who does. We have gone through the list of nurse educators who I've worked with as nurses 
Um, I'm really lucky. My emergency department, we're a 30, 40,000 visit emergency department, community-based emergency department. I've been working with the same nurses for 11 years. Um, they're awesome people. Uh, we work great together. I have seen some of these nurses take on these educator roles and talk about something that burns them out. <laughs> They'll deal with patients throwing shit at them all day long uh, because they're part of a team. They go in and try to do sustained improvement across the hospital and they're gone very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have buy-in up at the top to make that happen. I love this. And and I want to get to the, um, we're, we're just short of an hour and I want to keep this to about another 30 minutes at the most, but, um, but I got a question. What? A we real... just got set up. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Took us four hours to get ready. <laughs> good, good luck with that. The whiskey hadn't even hit in yet. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, for crying out loud. No, it's good talk and we'll keep it going, but I'm trying to be sensitive to our East Coast people there. It's like two in the morning there. Uh, but nonetheless, so I, I'm going to ask this question. Like two, to in the, two in yesterday morning for you West Coast people. <laughs> exactly. So what's good? I haven't even eaten dinner yet. I'm totally Mike's like, oh, I need my coffee. Time to wake up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So this one's for Tom and this one's for Jeff. I guess maybe for everybody, but we'll start with Tom. Um, There's that whole communication, the assigned communication. Assign the role. I did. I said, <laughs> we'll start with Tom. I said, I said, we'll start with Tom. So I, I will start off with, with the question and sort of the, well, let's just do it. So we, <laughs> and most agencies in my area have not done an ACLS class. And I can't tell you how long uh, we have not done a CPR class. And I'm using air quotes. And I can't tell you how long. However, but 50 to 55% of our people are walking out of the hospital better than them when they came in. So uh, what's the question? I guess the question is, is ACLS dead? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, it's not. I used to think exactly as you do. Okay. And now this may be different if you are a municipal or county EMS system that has no fire suppression accountability. Um, I went through a phase where I didn't believe at all in any cookie cutter course. And I felt uh, very strongly that if it was part of our core competency, who are these other people to, re to require us to have any type of card? I felt very strongly about that. As an EMS chief though, when I'm trying to fit EMS training into fire suppression, hazmat, urban search and rescue, and God knows how many other things, my ability to go to the fire chief and be like, hey, we got no choice, man. We got to do this CPR training. We got to do this ACLS training. Um, and now we have to pay our staff to it and we have to make time for it. And we have to fit it into the training calendar for me. Um, it turned out to be an awesome way for me to have face-to-face -face time with my guys and gals. And if yeah, I didn't so, have that, I would really be doing harm to the to the process. I just want to say one more thing about that. Okay. So BLS provider, we incorporated with high performance CPR and the pod method and instrumented mannequins. And that is our time to perfect rate, depth, recoil, controlled ventilation, shocking on a, a, a two-minute cycle and managing the perishock pause. And most recently, we have now incorporated infant high-performance CPR into ACLS, Yay. okay? So now we are touching all of the CPR quality, uh, adult and 
well, pediatric, not toddler, but it's close enough to adult, I guess. The thing that seems alien is a baby. And so we've now incorporated that into ACLS. Um, and of course, we also use the hand heavy method as well. Um, but this has really turned out to be a godsend for us. And so from that standpoint, I would I would encourage people before they just decide they don't need ACLS and they don't need CPR to figure out how to make it work for their organization. For sure. And I just wanted to clarify, I'm not saying don't do training. I'm saying I'm, I'm specifically talking about like the structured ACLS course, the structured BLS provider. We, we train twice a year in ACLS and, 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 you know, high performance CPR pit crew, the whole night, the whole nine yards. So we, we do more training. We just don't do the cookie cutter like course. Right. Because I was earlier on, I would say probably around 2015, maybe it was before that 20, 2009. Oh my God. Time has gone by so fast, but there was a time where our protocols were sort of outpacing what ACLS and what AHA was doing, and it created confusion for our providers, right? Like they would go to ACLS and learn one thing, and then their protocols would say something else and be like, oh, God, I don't know what to do. So it created a problem. So um, I just wanted to clarify that. Jarvis, what's your take on that? So, um, yeah, we, for example, just hypothetically to pick something out of the air, we don't give epinephrine the way ACLS says to give epinephrine. I just fundamentally disagree with their read on the literature. Yeah. Um, I think they're wrong. So we don't give it that way. Um, but I think ACLS has some value. Um, in our system, we obviously, I review the literature. I review a, even the ACLS uh, course when it comes out. I want to take a look at um, their take on the literature. Uh, for the most part, the vast majority of times, I'm like, yeah, that's a good take. I like that. We incorporate that into our protocols and in our training. Um, we do offer ACLS. We offer a lot of ACLS. We offer lots and lots of card courses to anybody who wants them. Uh, we don't require them, though. What we do require is our training and our approach to um, pit crew CPR, um, our approach to um, pit crew, if you will, choreographed intubations, um, that's the thing that we require and we focus on and we focus on how we want it done within our system. Yeah. So, um, I don't, I think there is a value to ACLS. Um, one, I think Tom's point is very valid. If it is helping you as an external, um, uh, means of education, justification. Yeah. yeah. If you need it, but this is all we do. Um, we're a third survey, we're a County agency that just does EMS. So we have the ability to train on whatever the, our clinical practices um, team determines through our quality improvement. Um, if it's CPR, it's CPR. So, and we do that, that resuscitation training um, all the time on an ongoing basis, the way that we want to do it based on our read of the literature, which is almost exactly ACLS, except for their, you know, misreading of the literature on epinephrine. All right. Good stuff. So um, I, I, I'm sorry. I do. There is one other thing I want to oh, say. Yeah. You had mentioned um, COVID. So Situation. early on when you were asking about cardiac arrest survival rates and yeah. Ashley and I were having very unfortunate 
technical difficulties. I think it was just you that was having those. She was looked fine with her <laughs> glass you. of wine. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Not being blamed. Here, have some wine. <laughs> so the problem is that, um, so our cardiac arrest, our Udstein survival, which we get, it's really nice. A guy named Michael, uh, Micah in Texas emailed it to me. He said, here's your CARES survival rate. As if you're watching from Texas, urge your administration uh, and your agency to participate in Texas CARES. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah. So we get that report. We had a 6% drop in our Utstein survival rate last year. Um, the Eagles just published a paper on this. We're looking at this uh, from a Texas standpoint. Survival is dropping. Um, now, as I look at that, we took a 5% hit um, from 38 to 33% overall. We have a pretty wide um, community. So we have some parts where there are way more cows than people, and it takes us a really long time to get there. That's going to be a challenge unless we can get uh, get there quicker. No matter what we do, it's not going to help. Um, the inverse of that is true, by the way. All the dysfunction we talked about with in-hospital CPR, yeah, their survival rates are still way better than ours. And it's because if you get a defibrillator on someone in two minutes, you can cover up an awful lot of really bad team performance. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, the fundamental driver there. Um, the thing I wanted to talk about CARES, at least looking at our survival, is I think, and I, I absolutely blame myself for this, that drop is we took our eye off the ball. We became more focused, understandably so, on protecting ourselves and how we <laughs> needed all the different ways we needed to change our resuscitation. We're going to put the patient in a full body condom before we begin resuscitation. We're going to intubate this different way. Well, we're going to speed the intubation up. Oh, no, we're not going to intubate at all. Um, we're going to all of these things we did for understandable reasons. And I'm, I'm making this critique of myself in retrospect and knowing now what I didn't know then. Um, we took our eye off the ball in about five years worth of training. I think we lost completely that inertia and culture completely changed. And I think it's going to take us a long time to get back. Just like if you look at the reason continuous compressions and minimal interruptions are so impressive or important is because it takes a while to build up that pressure wave. And when you have an interruption, you lose it, not just for the time you're not doing compression, but for longer. I think that's what we did with our resuscitation. We've taken about five years to build practice up we dropped even for, I think it's been, we're still not back to our pre-COVID approach. So let's say 10 months charitably. I think it's probably going to take another two years to get that momentum back where it was before. Just speaking for my agency, maybe everybody else is different. Um, but that's what I'm really, really afraid of. Some good uh, comments going on in the chat there. Thanks for sharing some of those links there, uh, Robert Lawrence. Thank you for that. Jay-Z's been in there. Uh, Lori oh, talking about. I can't about, see the chat. Hi, Rob Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's uh, out there hanging out. Um, I'm sorry. I do have to say a couple of things here because Jay Z may be sober, and I'm going to hit all. Of, I saw his bingo cards. He's so. not. He's not sober. He's got a Coke Zero. Oh, we'll have to fix that. Hey, Ashley, did you know Texas is a delegated practice state? <laughs> bingo. We should. Uh, we should look at this with a waterfall uh, chart. Okay. I'll tell bingo, you the best bingo. part of his bingo card was um, 
all the technical difficulties and the fact that you lost what hair you had left. Um, See, I came in here with massive amounts of hair. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, listen, we're, we're doing great, and I love this conversation, but I do want to transition a little bit uh, to your to our dual broadcasters there um, with lackluster audio. I'm just, just saying that just because I want to rub it into – yeah, I'm just kidding. Your audio is fine. It's fine. I'm just, trying, it, to, I'm, I'm just trying to look, look. It's not even Calm going down. where it's supposed to be going. Calm down. I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, see, it doesn't take long to get them riled up. Do you see that? Yeah. See what you did. Yeah. See what you did, you right. little jerk. How's, uh, how's this doing, Mike? <laughs> so good. I'll see you in October. Don't worry about that. Um, listen. Is, is this, seriously, is this audio any better? It no. sounds the same. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> uh, it, sounds, it sounds a little worse. All right. Listen. <laughs> Listen, oh, and Rob says hello, Ashley. Um, oh, yay. Love that guy. So Hi, Rob. We, we have been talking a lot about, I, I don't know, I guess you could call it anecdotal. Why do hospital codes seem to go a little bit weirder, not maybe as good? And again, none of this is meant to be inflammatory. This is like, how do we, how do we help? Like, what role do we play in helping maybe some improvement in this, right? And so that's really the whole thing. So the, the question got up. Uh, or became during our sort of offline chats over the last few days as we're getting ready for this. Uh, Jarvis says, I guess I'm going to have to look up some papers. Uh, Ashley, who said, well, I'll look at some stuff too. So I'm curious from your guys' perspective, um, are we crazy or is there something to this hospital in the hospital on the floor arrest stuff? Has anyone ever looked at it? Like, what's the story? Yeah, actually, there's there's a significant amount um, of data surrounding particular. I mean, obviously, I'm always paying attention to the nurse led ACLS and the nurse's role in in that. So um, so just, you know, obviously, that's my bias. And so there's a significant amount of literature and has been for the I mean, this isn't although I do think we're smart and novel, um, we're not the first people to have thought about this. Um, and so there has been there has been research over the years. Um, most interestingly to me, though, because it's right in line with um, exactly um, what I what I talked about or what I discussed with you guys here and what I talked about in Berlin a few years ago at SMAC, um, what is a is a study that was published in the BMJ um, cardiac arrest nurse leadership trial It's called can lead um, a simulation based randomized control trial implementation of new cardiac arrest role to facilitate cognitive offloading for medical team leaders. So basically what they did was they ran these simulations and used this, um, this NASA test about cognitive um, load. Um, and they, they identified that when nurses managed um, that managed the ACLS grant. Now to be clear, no nurses trying to roll in and be a physician. Okay. So when nurses manage the ACLS, the medical team lead, so the attending physician or whomever is the medical team lead, um, were able to mm. cognitively offload um, uh, in a way that they were not when they were also responsible for the for the ACLS. And so, um, so for me, this is a, you know is a is a great study because it it solidifies everything that I believe in, um, which is that 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 docs need that assistance to be able to think about big picture and not think about timing and how much drug and what drug and all those kinds of things, but they, that they need to cognitively offload those small tasks um, so that their decisions are left for a much, a much bigger and broader scope. 
And so, um, so that as um, that recent study to me was, you know, is just one um, that's, you know, been done in the last five or six years that, uh, that again shows that there is some utility to having this um, assigned roles and team performance sort of approach to um, ACLS, which is exactly what we're doing um, in the field. And so, um, so that's kind of, that's kind of my take. I think, I think Jeff might have another piece of literature he was interested in. Yeah. And so I didn't look at hospital resuscitation, Mike. Um, I do think I just PubMedding it. There yeah. are a couple of papers there. There's some simulation studies with the Navy that looked at uh, their approach, but they're all simulation trials. Um, I think it's a good body of work. I didn't see any randomized control trials. Um, and I think there's a reason. It's going to be really hard to run that as a randomized control trial. Um, yeah, hey, sign me up for the people that are a shit show. Let's, let's randomize <laughs> that would, you That would be dead for the dumb people. <laughs> right. It's, it's going to be – IRBs may have a problem with that. Um, but I did take a look at a couple. I, I found two EMS papers that talk about this. So Tom mentioned um, the, uh, the Wake County paper. And so that's Paul Hinchy's paper. This was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in uh, 2010. And it's improved out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival after the sequential implementation of a 2005 AHA guidelines for compressions, ventilation, and induced hypothermia, the Wake County experience. I do like the fact that they definitely got the Wake County experience Wake. in there. I think that's all they needed to do. Um, so they're pretty interesting authors on this paper. I mentioned it's uh, Paul Hinchy, Brent Myers, uh, Ryan Lewis. I see Jay-Z himself is on this paper. And basically it was a before and after implementation study. And it was multi-phase step where they really focused on improving their resuscitation. They did a, um, we want to focus on minimal chest compressions, a choreographed approach, and then they stepped in the um, different aspects of the 2005 guidelines. Um, ultimately, their uh, neurologically intact survival of the basically Utstein survival went from around 27 to, uh, where was it, 27 to 40 percent? Is that right? Um, I'm sorry, the, the, difference was 27%. So 27% uh, increase in survival. So that's that's fairly impressive. Um, and the best that I can tell is the, uh, the Wake County folks being from North Carolina, I believe that may be where the concept and the phrase pit crew CPR came from oh. um, that a lot of us have adopted. So they did not, however, think to include the phrase pit crew CPR in their paper, which is rather disappointing. Um, so we have another paper. This is out of um, Salt Lake. This is implementation of pit crew approach and cardiopulmonary resuscitation metrics. Proud of hospital cardiac arrest, uh, improves patient survival and neurologic outcome. Um, Dr. Hopkins is the, the lead author um, and Scott Youngquist is the senior author. So if you basically take a look at it. They list the steps they went through to improve their, their bundle or their pit crew approach. And they saw overall, all comers survival go from 8% to 16%. Everybody that's including the assisteles, functional neurologic outcome, walking out, paying taxes again. And their V um, that 
ended up with a, where was it? Odds ratio of 2.3. So 130% increase in the odds of functional neurologic survival with implementing this bundle. And I'd like to just, if you haven't gotten this paper, gotten, if you Received? haven't, if you don't have this paper, you should get it because it is actually a, here are the step-by-step -step things that we did. So it's pretty nice. Uh, it was, let oh, me go. just posted it for you. Outstanding. Boom. Where to go, uh, Mikey? So they did uh, a couple of chunks. CPR quality improvement initiative chunk. They um, implemented and went over the uh, biometric data, and they looked at the real-time CPR feedback and made sure that everybody was focused on that. So same things that we've all been talking about here. Their medical director did post-event reviews of with the crews and of the biometrics. They, I think they did some things that um, were great for them, but I don't know how much it contributed to their improvement, like using the see-through CPR feature of one of the monitors. Um, they did on-scene resuscitation versus throwing them in the back of the ambulance and driving fast. Um, there's just a study published in JAMA um, saying, hey, you might want to work them at least for 30 minutes to improve your resuscitation. Um, they did passive <laughs> oxygenation, and then eventually they implemented the rescue pattern uh, impedance um, threshold device. They did, they simplified their codes. They said, why don't you just drop an IO and push your meds through that, less focus on airway, get rid of the stupid atropine, make things easier. And then they have the final component of this was their crew team training. They really focused on uh, team dynamics and after action review. So take a look at that paper. Um, it really does have some nice steps on what they did. And I think they have written out what a lot of the components are that we've been talking about. And just for Jay-Z, um, so he'll have to take another shot. They have some beautiful plots, um, not quite a waterfall plot, but it is some nice visualization. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. First of all, great review of the paper. Have you guys ever heard Paul Hinchy give the talk on, it's called CPR Under the Oak Tree? Do you guys ever hear him give that talk? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're basically, we're, we're basically, I mean, it was so ingrained that you stay in play that if someone re-arrested en route, you would park the ambulance under the old oak tree and you continue cardiac arrest care the way it should be done at zero miles per hour. And so, uh, yeah, that, that was a great talk. I remember that based on what Paul, uh, what Jeff's talking about. So, so let me just hit on a couple of other papers. Um, one, speaking of pit crew um, that Paul was an author on, uh, Luis Gonzalez was the primary author on this, and it does get the word pit crew in the title. They are a system, Austin, who's been doing all of these things, all of the pit crew approaches, and then they almost at random implemented a Lucas device. So their first responder agencies bought a bunch of these Lucas devices, and they would show up at random parts of the way they would be deployed wasn't systematic. And it was pretty close to random, um, not meaning it was intentionally that way, but that's the way it ended up, which was made makes for a nice, nice natural experiment. And what they found, all of the things being held constant, throwing this new thing in, decreased survival. So not only do the studies fail to show benefit, 
in this study, they actually decreased um, survival. And that is likely because, and this is their conclusion, it's Mike Levy's conclusion with his paper, um, that just introducing mechanical CPR takes away from all of the things that we've been talking about. That is not a, a panacea. Panacea? Panacea. That panacea, thank you. No, um, no my mic. I actually no pronounced way. it right the first time, but my mic just didn't transmit it well. <laughs> so you you got to watch for those things. But again, if the the flip side or the converse, so that would be that um, if we if we trained in those things exactly when we introduced a new um, algorithm or a new a new piece to that puzzle, if we trained and simulated and practiced those things in the same way that we did pit crew CPR that we would be just as successful. It's just that when we get up the Lucas device or the we, any mechanical CPR device um, that we get out once a year, um, and we're not as efficient with that because it's not been ingrained in our memory, that has an effect on, on the data and the outcomes as well. And so if we, if we are going to utilize those as part of our system, then, um, then that training has to be, um, has, has to become part of the ethos of what we're doing and has to be um, part of our training just as frequently and just as often as the, the concepts of, of pit crew CPR. Yeah. Totally. And like on Hilton Head Island, we um, started CARES in 2010 and then we had um, a really good year in 2011 and then we had like 72% Udstein in 2012 and we're like oh my god like how much how much more awesome could this get we'll implement the lucas device and it'll get even better yeah and our survival absolutely tanked and we had done all of the training we uh could apply it on a mannequin in 10 seconds and we have the videos where we high-fived each other and we gave all that feedback and stuff but the real world is not a mannequin the real world people have different body habitus, they're wearing different types of clothes, they might be wearing a jacket. Um, I've read all the literature on the application of the Lucas device. In our system, we determined there was up to three pauses, number one for the back plate, number two to put the plunger in place, number three to reposition the plunger. So there was up to three um, disruptions and a uh, possible disruption of defibrillations on other either side of the application time as of the peri application time as well, and so um, we found it to be really disruptive to teamwork in our system, and we had to claw our way back to success. It took several years. For, well, it took you know we we had our misadventure 2013, 2014, 2015 to uh, Jeff's point from what we're going to have to do in the wake of COVID, and I agree with this. Um, 2015 a little better and then 16 and then 17, you know, um, you, you don't come right back from something like that. Um, I know that we have saved lives with the Lucas device. Um, we've applied it as a precaution for patients with ROSC. We've had patients that we have successfully resuscitated. We have determined they had LAD occlusion and they re-arrested multiple times. We've applied the Lucas device. We were able to give them high quality CPR on the way to the hospital and they've had good outcomes, but in our system, it was very disruptive to teamwork. And, um, and so that was our experience with the device. Hey, you know, it's funny, Tom, I wanna, I wanna comment on that because the most sobering uh, reality that I've had with this is 
whenever we have a cardiac arrest in a public location, I immediately have my BC, my battalion call the, the, the place because the, the video gets erased after 24 hours. And now we have a lot of video of people who arrest in public places, you know, Vietnamese restaurant. We had a Home Depot the other day. When you get the video and you and you see the video and you're and you're looking, you're like, oh my God, those are some of my best people there, but they're just not functioning the same way that we did in practice when everyone's watching. And when you when you play that video, boy, do people realize how different things are in reality. And so I don't know what the fix is for that, except to say that, hey, you know, by the way, that if you're ever in public, there's always going to be video, right? For good or for bad, probably yeah. more so for good. So if anyone out there listening can get that video from a public location and use it, and then I, I, I show that video more often than not just to remind people that, you know, uh, it's hard to be as good in reality as you are in training. So, so let me just, just from my pure, this is not science at all. I want to be clear about that. Um, my take on the Lucas device. Um, so, Tom, you said it has absolutely saved lives. I think there are, and I don't disagree with you. I think this... Um, situations you define or some of those that it's really helpful in. Um, the big thing that I want to focus on is whose life is it saving? Um, we think it's the patients. If we are transporting with CPR in progress, granted, there are some situations where you're going to get sucked into it. They code in the back of the truck. They had ROSC. We went in route. They rearrested. whatever the issue is. If you're doing CPR in the back of an ambulance and you're in a collision or you helicopter. Are host or helicopter, uh, one, your compressions probably suck, but two, you're really at risk. So the life it may save is actually ours as opposed to the patient, which I'm a little more focused on, to be honest. It's a life safety issue. Um, next, I think what I think Lucas does have a role, but the key is when do you use it and how do you use it? I think early on in a resuscitation. And if you look at the the JAMA paper on this intra arrest transport versus um, on scene transport, they there's a really nice plot in there that's a forest plot that looks at time epochs. So I think they're like five minute epochs, and basically up to about thirty minutes, you are better off resuscitating on scene uh, until you get to a conclusion. After about thirty minutes. Um, maybe it's time to go to the hospital. And that doesn't mean all patients, by the way. We work ours for 40 minutes, and if we don't have pulses back, it's um, I give a termination. Um, but there may be a benefit after some period of time to switching over in a choreographed fashion to mechanical um, CPR. The benefit of mechanical CPR is if it's already on when they arrest. Um, so, Tom, the point uh, that the situation you pointed out is they were in arrest. So, I mean, a pretty good predictor mm -hmm. for going into cardiac arrest mm -hmm. is that you were just in, in arrest, cardiac yes. arrest. So you get pulses back, put the lupus on then. Um, STEMIs might be another thing, at least get the backboard under them. Um, I think most of us are putting defib pads on all STEMIs. Um, we get a high number of VFib. And this is actually an interesting CARES thing. If you have a STEMI patient and you have the pads on and they go into a rest and you hit the button, you shock them and they wake up or they actually never lost consciousness. You never did compression one. 
that's not going to be reflected in your, um, at least it used to be not reflected in your cares because that wasn't a cardiac arrest. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Works really, really well. So that's my take on lupus. Yeah. I love that. So let's, let's wrap it up. I, I, I was trying to, I think, to, I think that was a text from like, Mike saying, would you sh like, shut up? God. <laughs> You guys talk too much. No, I wonder no, what's only that were predictable. I know. Listen, it, yeah, no, it's great conversation, and 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 I just want to be respectful of everybody's time. But, um, I wanted to wrap it up because we've been talking for about an hour twenty minutes or so, maybe a little less for some of us that are on the broadcast. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, that was that was a dig. That was a dig. Um, but we've been talking about sort of, sort of some of these issues, right? Um, let's talk about what, what can we offer as EMS? What, how can we partner with our hospitals? What, what role, what role does EMS have? I just heard myself. It was very strange, uh, in doing this. So Tom, let's start with you. I'm sorry, man. I was, I was the one making you hear yourself. So what was the question, Mike? <laughs> it was, uh, can you describe in some detail the technical problems that Dr. Jarvis was having? This afternoon? Uh, <laughs> I, I expect to end up the manuscript next week. Yeah, no, no. It was, it was really, we, we've spent the last couple, you know, hour and a half talking about sort of the perceived issues in hospital. But the question to you is, is how can EMS partner with our hospitals and help improve those outcomes for, for that? Um, and really, what's the, what are some thoughts and ideas of how we can, and I want everyone to think about this because I kind of want to close with that, but like, what can we do to help in this situation? Well, I think just like um, some things, um, many, most things, let's face it, have gone from the hospital to EMS because EMS didn't exist prior to what, 1965, something like that. And so like we, the idea in the beginning that we're going to take, you know, ER care and we're going to take it out on an ambulance, we're going to take it to the patient's living room. And there's a couple things that over the years we've figured out that EMS can bring something back to the hospital, something that we figured out, whether that's continuous waveform capnography, um, whether it's uh, verifying tube placement or, or analyzing the quality of CPR, things like that. We've realized that um, it's not just your individual skills, um, whether it's rate depth recoil or controlled ventilations or you know, most people that have ever learned how to take care of a baby, it's been, you were trained individual. Let me see you do the compressions. Like, let me see you the ventilations. It's teamwork that matters. And we figured that out pre-hospital and we've seen it confer this huge benefit. And so now I think it's up to hospitals to realize that there's something there and coming up with an ad hoc team and hoping for the best, maybe isn't the best thing that we can do for our patients. And so for hospitals to open up their minds a little bit and say, yes, we might have to have a dedicated cardiac arrest team, or we might have to start doing simulations or paying people overtime to learn something. I think they need to just kind of open up their minds a little bit and, and realize there's benefit there. There are benefits to doing that inside the hospital. And we shouldn't start the conversation with the idea like this can't happen inside the hospital. It can. It can. Yes. There's lots of smart people that work at hospitals. They can figure this out. And I think the inspiration can come from pre-hospital. That's my comment. Yeah. Peter. I think, I think there's two big things. I think number one 
is that we, at least from the EMS side, are now pushing the hospitals to become resuscitation centers of excellence. So we literally go into hospitals, and I met with one uh, group with the CEO recently and said, and again, we stole this from the folks in Austin, uh, you know, with Paul Hinchy and those folks put together back in the day. But we said, these are the things that we want for you to do to our patients when we bring them in, number one. And, you know, they um, are now starting to recognize, which is the second big thing, is that hospitals now start to have to recognize that EMS performs CPR much better than they ever will. And again, even with all the training we just talked about, at the end of the day, I feel like there's no one who can come close to the type of CPR high-performance CPR that we're performing in the field. And, you know, I think there has to be some sort of linkage. I've tried to do that, and I'm going to continue to try to do that, but I do get a lot of resistance, meaning that when we bring folks into the hospital and my folks call me and say, we're so angry because of what we saw, and then I bring it to the hospital, I literally get a bunch of BS from the, from the medical directors who they brush everything under the rug because they don't want to get upset at, at their line physicians. And so um, I haven't figured out the right way to kind of make it happen, but I think there has to be a recognition from the hospital side that EMS is its own subspecialty, that we have a lot to offer. And, you know, I think EMTs, paramedics, I think need to rise up and say, we are really great at what we do and stop looking down on themselves and understand that we should be treating cardiac arrest where we find it rather than thinking that we're going to bring them to a hospital who's going to do anything better. So we have to stop, you know, transporting dead people to a hospital unless, like Ashley said, it's for ECMO. Uh, we should just treat them on scene. If we can't get them back on scene, we call the code. If they're refractory, let's bring them in on a Lucas for ECMO if your places do that. So it's really – there's a big mind shift that has to happen to with, with EMS all around the country <coughs> happening. So that's just my two cents. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ashley, um, let's give Dr. Jarvis the next one and then we'll let you have the final word. But so Dr. Jarvis, what are your thoughts? You're going to be optimistic. Yeah, I'm totally good. Good. Always. Oh, so, you, wanted to, you wanted to end on a positive note. Is that what yeah, you're exactly. I'm always <laughs> Ashley optimistic. <laughs> That's what I was. I just wanted to, to be clear about. <laughs> so I'm wearing my EMS hat now mm -hmm. just to, to be clear about that. Not my hospital hat. Yep. Um, we have finite resources. We have finite amount of time and ability to impact change. And what I try to do as a medical director, as a, a leader of the organization, is find the places and the situations where we can apply that time, expend that money, time, resources, attention, and have the most impact. I will tell you, I am cynical enough about this with our hospitals that I don't think that's the place to, for us to spend our, um, our energies. If we are asked, absolutely, we will go all in and do anything for you to help you learn. But I'm not a big, I've never been able to push a horse to water to get him to drink. If you don't mind me just mixing up several different Texas metaphors. It's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, I love that. Sorry, right, now, actually, if you don't mind, we're all about to jump off a cliff. Bring us home. No, I actually, I don't I don't disagree with that statement at all. And I don't think it's EMS's role, whilst I think that if they're invited to participate in to help, I think that that's wonderful. But I think that 
that hospitals ultimately have to own this, that physicians and nurses in those leadership positions have to own this and have to say, this is a priority and this is important to us to do this in a way um, that we're managing our ergonomics, our team resuscitation, our communication, and empowering our nurses in um, nurse-led ACLS, um, assigning roles and doing all the things that, um, that we know works in the literature. Um, and so I think that if hospitals want to do this, and we have relationships with hospitals, you can tell them I'll come. I'll come. Just put me on a plane. I'll come for free. You don't have to pay me. I will show you how to do this because I, I believe in nursing and, um, and, I, and I know it works. I've seen it work and it's extremely motivating to, to, to see it happen. Um, and then when that doesn't work, because it doesn't, because I've been saying that for the last five years now, um, I, I need someone who's really great in business um, uh, the, the Peter Antevis of the world to turn this into a trend, to make it, to make it impossible for people to say no to simple solutions. Um, and this is a simple solution. There are simple answers here and it's an, it's algorithmic and it's easy. Um, and so if you know the Jayco people and you know, the, um, the, you know, the hospital leadership folks and these associations, this is a simple, this is a super simple change and we just need to figure out how to, how to make how to get in there and make it happen i like that answer so much i'm going to withhold my jaco smart ass comment <laughs> so good amen ashley so good yes exactly excellent great discussion you guys i wanted to quickly just transition just as a quick reminder that we've got fast 21 coming up may 11th and 12th that uh, will be a great virtual conference we're trying to do things a little bit different um, so if you haven't checked that out, go to fastsymposium.com or the Flight Bridget website. Uh, they're right in the middle of the 21 days of giveaways. So they're giving away all kinds of crap every day. So we got about 10 more days of that. So go to their Facebook page or Twitter or whatever. You can check all that stuff out. So um, I, I just want to do that. I know Ashley speaking, Dr. Jarvis, Dr. Antevi. I am not. not. Tom, I don't think you are, right? No. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, did that sound weird and bad? I didn't mean it. I did, you guys were like, oh, oh my God, what did he just say? Um, <laughs> I didn't mean for it to sound. I mean, I'm not speaking either, and I do stuff for them. Anyway, so um, I guess, <laughs> does that mean digging myself out of the hole? Or into it. I mean, what, both, what both they, work. One or the other. I don't know. I don't know. So, it's going to yeah. be a great conference. Please come. Yeah, it's going to be great. Go check it out. It's going to be cool. Um, so with that, on behalf of everybody, thanks for jumping on with us and spending a, a little bit of time with us today. Um, you know, always pays off. Just as my last little bit, check your equipment before your live broadcast. Give yourself plenty of time. So this is the point no where problems. I like to say this was a Fire Dog production. <laughs> well, yeah, for me and running the digits Ooh. here speaking of that oh lord there's not enough wine in this bottle to handle that comment right there i feel like that is a great transition to the fire dog outro you guys all have a great night we will talk to you soon thanks for tuning in you Bye -bye. guys thanks guys second shift is a production of flight bridge ed llc at flightbridgeed.com <laughs>